Hello and welcome to The Elephant, I'm Kevin Canners. Back in January of this year, the once marginal idea of carbon capture was suddenly big news. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, had announced in a tweet that he would be donating $100 million to fund a prize for the best carbon capture technology or method. For an industry that is still tiny, the money was a staggering amount, far larger than any single investment that has been made into the industry so far, which is good because according to the UN's own projections, we need to be capturing gigatons of carbon dioxide per year in just a couple decades from now. This four-year global competition invites teams from anywhere in the world to create and demonstrate solutions that can pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sequester it durably and sustainably. To win the grand prize, teams must demonstrate a working solution at a scale of at least 1,000 tons per year, model their costs at a scale of 1 million tons per year, and show a pathway to achieving scale on the level of gigatons a year. And any process that sequesters CO2 is eligible, from nature-based solutions to innovative technologies, as long as it meets those metrics. The prize money will be administered by the XPRIZE, a foundation that was set up in 1997 and whose mission is to bring about, quote, radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. And according to the XPRIZE, this carbon capture purse represents the largest incentive prize in history. To talk to me about the prize and the lay of the land when it comes to capturing carbon dioxide, I'm joined by Marcus Extavor, the executive director of the XPRIZE, as well as Erica Dodds, the CEO of the Foundation for Climate Restoration, an organization which aims to catalyze action towards climate restoration and ensure a habitable planet for future generations. Erica and Marcus, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Good to be here. Marcus, could you just start off by telling me a bit about what the XPRIZE is? Yes, of course. So XPRIZE is a nonprofit foundation. We're based in California, and we try to use convening and collaboration, but also competition through incentive prizes to try to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. What does that mean? We pick a topic that we think really could use uh, a boost of innovation and creative thinking. We design a prize or a challenge with a clear set of objectives and invite anyone with a solution to showcase their solution and win a prize. It's usually a cash prize, so it's an obvious incentive, but the big idea is to advance a space, to increase the level of activity, to draw in external funding, um, and to raise a level of conversation. So now there's a, a new one specifically around carbon removal. Can you tell me a bit about that and what the parameters are? Yes, absolutely. So we're really excited about this prize, and we just launched it formally on Earth Day. The focus is on climate change, but specifically on this key capability, which is to remove carbon dioxide that's already in the air or already in the oceans and take it back out and sequester it safely and durably. So $100 million is the total prize purse. That's the largest uh, prize in history, we think. And it's broken down in a few phases. Um, $5 million just focused for student proposals or student-led proposals, graduate students, postdocs. As long as the team is led and involves students, um, it's okay. Although it doesn't have to be exclusively students. Uh, $15 million will be given to the first 15 best pieces of data and submissions that we get a year from now. And then the remaining 80 million, if you're counting out of the 100, will be devoted to the grand prize winners four years from now at the end of the competition. The last thing I'll say just really briefly is that it's wide open competition to any type of solution that can execute carbon removal. Carbon removal is not really one thing, it's more of like an outcome. You can do this using a nature-based solution like a grass or a plant. 
uh, roots and soils, biochar, you can restore a coastal wetland, you can manage a forest. You can also build a mechanical device and mechanically or chemically remove CO2 from the air. You can use minerals and rocks. There are a lot of ways that people are discussing doing this, a whole suite of ocean-based approaches. What we're saying is, do you understand the costs? Do you understand how to grow massively? Can you build a modest size demonstration that actually works? We're not looking for proposals, we're looking for real demonstrations. And if you can do those three things, you have a chance of winning this prize. We're hoping to see hundreds of different ideas, not just proposed, but actually demoed. Because if we can get to demonstration or beyond, that is how the rest of the world can figure out how to deploy and scale these kind of solutions. Okay, and so those 15 $1 million prizes, is the idea that that's funding for the most promising ones to actually be able to test them out if they don't have the resources? Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of investment, so to speak, and it's also a bit of incentive. So fundraising for new solution areas is always difficult, and the prize is roughly structured on reward for performance. So anyone that wants to build, let's say, a demonstration of their marine-based carbon removal solution, they've got to raise the money, grant money, angel investors, whatever kind of other capital they can get their hands on. That $1 million can be an injection. Maybe it'll be more than enough. Maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be insufficient. But the point is, it'll be a reward for the best initial pieces of data that we see a year from now. And of course, the winners are free to use that capital any way they choose, hopefully to reinvest in their project and help it grow from there. I'm kind of curious about why all the money wouldn't go to that kind of part instead of at the the end, because it seems to me like, oh, well, by the time the winner gets to that point, maybe they, they don't even need it or maybe need it a bit less. Can you tell me about that decision? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's kind of like a fundamental structure of a prize format. So and a prize structure is not a traditional funding mechanism, but it can be complementary to other traditional mechanisms. So like a grant is sort of at the other end of the spectrum. A grant is essentially uh, you propose an idea, maybe backed up by some work you've done to date, and then you're funded to carry on and pursue your idea. That's great. That works really well. And we're looking for competitors in the XPRIZE to also be pursuing grant opportunities. A prize is different because it doesn't reward any ideas. It doesn't reward concepts. It only rewards demonstrated performance. So it pushes people in a different way to say, if you can figure out how to do and prove your thing, we'll reward you. And the idea is that a lot of other investment, a lot of other attention, scrutiny, and discussion can be generated in the course of pursuing the prize. And a wide open prize also doesn't re require sort of subjective analysis of how far can this get or what will be achieved in the future. It's a little bit more, well, this is what was actually achieved. Uh, and we can compare these solutions and go. So I don't think one is better than the other. I think of them as complementary. Um, but in this case, the, we're, it's certainly the case that the prize format is pay for performance, mostly at the end. But you know, an, another version of your question as well, why not just $100 million to one winner at the end? Well, we're thinking of this as $100 million to kind of seed an ecosystem and dispersing the capital in this way is one way we think we can do that. And is the money guaranteed to be handed out? Because I, I know that, for example, there was a Google-sponsored prize around landing on the moon for like a, an unmanned uh, mission, mm -hmm. which wasn't handed out. And there was also the Virgin prize that I Googled because I'm like, oh, didn't they already have something like this? Which uh, apparently just kind of fizzled out after... Uh, 12 or something years. So is there a guarantee that this money will be dispersed? There's a guarantee that the money will disperse if somebody does the thing. Uh, basically, that's okay. how the prize works. If you do X, Y, Z, you win the prize. If you only do X and Y, it's the, it, it may not happen. Now, X prizes, I think we've awarded, I think 17 different prizes. Our intention is absolutely to pay this purse 
the whole purpose of a prize is to set an ambitious target and have people meet it and pay it out. Um, Google Lunar was not awarded because nobody made it to the moon. And the prize was extended several times to try to give a bit more runway. And in the end, Google and XPRIZE decided that the best thing to do was to wrap it up. And actually, I think there was still a prize paid for a great attempt. And then Virgin, they had a kind of completely different structure, and completely different format, and they made their own decisions to, to obviate the prize. But I'll just point to the NRG COSIA Carbon XPRIZE, which we just wrapped up. We're just wiring $20 million, or the remaining 15 actually this week, uh, which we're pretty proud of and feels great. We design and operate these prizes because we're interested to disperse the capital. And uh, this largest one is no exception. I can't wait to be a part of uh, dispersing some of this money. Erica, can you maybe tell me about your involvement? I know you operate a uh, climate restoration organization. What's your connection? And can you give me kind of an overview of what is the current stage of this area, of this focus of climate change, of pulling carbon back out? Yeah, definitely. So I'm the CEO of the Foundation for Climate Restoration, and our mission is to restore a pre-industrial climate, a safe and healthy climate that will allow for future generations to flourish on our planet. And our goal is to do that by the year 2050, which is if you're you know, keeping track of a lot of the commitments that are out there right now, most people are working on getting to net zero by 2050. And that's hard, right? So in order to restore a pre-industrial climate, you actually need to go way beyond net zero to a deeply net negative state. And in order to do that, we need to build up a massive infrastructure of carbon removal technologies, like the ones that will be spurred by the X prize that we were just discussing. So really excited to see that moving forward. When we think about the development of the space, there's been a huge amount of growth in the last couple of years. We've been really excited to see carbon removal in the press really frequently now. It's, you know, every day there's something new in the in the mainstream media. And Climate restoration is really, you know, it's not just carbon removal for the sake of carbon removal. It's not carbon removal for the sake of balancing out our emissions. It's carbon removal for the sake of restoring a climate that we can survive in. And that requires a scale that's, you know, far beyond what most people are working on, but that doesn't mean it's not achievable. And with the the types of innovations and, you know, increased investment in the space that we've been seeing, we feel really optimistic about getting there. I mean, like you mentioned, like net zero is already a super, super ambitious target that most people wonder if we can actually get there, given given our track record over the past 20 years of, of only increasing our overall emissions. And then to get down to pre-industrial level, when I read that, I was I was really struck like, wow, that uh, seems almost to me crazy, given that I don't know how many uh, gigatons and gigatons and gigatons of carbon dioxide would need to be removed from the atmosphere. Why go with such a seemingly unreachable target, I guess, or or at least to me right now, given our track record, uh, certainly very, very, very ambitious. Yeah, really, we're looking to shift the paradigm. Because historically, when we've thought about climate change, we've thought about it from the scientific perspective, where we're looking to kind of predict and describe and explain what's going on. And with that scientific approach, you can look at, okay, here are the different levers. What happens if we shift this one? What happens if we go all electric cars? What happens if we use, you know, recycled CO2 for jet fuels? And it can get us really far, right? The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has all these scenarios that are based on like, okay, well, what happens if we if we shift these things in the model? But if you want to get to a place where we know that humanity can survive, 
you need to go a little bit beyond that. So our approach is to look at what is the endpoint that we would actually be satisfied with. And for us, that is the type of climate that humanity and our natural world evolved in. So before the Industrial Revolution, CO2 levels were 270, 280 parts per million max. And so we're looking to get below 300 parts per million. We feel like that's a really good safe spot. And in order to get there, instead of looking at what are the levers that we might be able to shift, we're looking at, okay, here's where we want to get. What does it take to get there? How would we do this? And I think if you look at historic human innovation, the the places where we've made exponential changes are the places where we've stopped asking, is it possible to? And we've started asking, how would we? And as we started asking that question, we found that there are a lot of promising solutions that can get us there. But we're not limited by much at this point other than our own ambition. One thing that strikes me when reading about this topic is that it's still really controversial. A lot of green groups or environmentalists within the climate change area see it as distracting and see it as uh, basically giving us this mythical get out of jail free card where we don't actually have to do the work. I was wondering what your response to that would be and, and why you think it's viewed that way. Yeah, this moral hazard question comes up all the time. And we always are careful to say that climate restoration is something that needs to happen in concert with mitigation and adaptation efforts. We obviously still need to decarbonize. We obviously still need to adapt our civilization to the changes that are already baked in and already happening now. But I always like to point out there are like 8 billion people on this planet. We can do more than one thing at a time. And in fact, we've been trying to do the same thing for the last 50 years. And as you mentioned, we haven't made good enough progress. So it's time to say, okay, in our bathtub of an atmosphere, we've been working and working to turn down the faucet, turn down the amount of CO2 we're dumping into the atmosphere. Yes, keep doing that. But in the meantime, the bathtub is overflowing. So we really need to figure out how to pull the drain as well so that we actually have a hope here. I think Erica said it really well there. You know, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that um, there is a there's something about this climate crisis that is a little bit unbelievable. And you said it earlier, Kevin. Like, you know, what do you mean pre-industrial levels? Like, is that a serious goal? It seems maybe a little bit out of reach. And the answer is like, yeah, it is a serious goal. And we do have to shift our mindset. Emissions have just going up and up and up. The idea of removing CO two from the ocean or the air does sound a little silly when you first hear it. It seems almost like are you actually saying we have to go that far? But the arithmetic shows us, yeah, yeah, we really do. What might have seemed like a silly proposition 10 or 20 years ago is no longer silly. People are actually just doing it and we know we need to do it more. And that kind of is the work. It's not a distraction from the work and it doesn't replace the need to immediately decarbonize like Erica was saying. But uh, yes, this is something we're going to have to do. And as it happens, the longer we wait, to implement solutions, the more we are going to have to entertain proposals like this and also entertain other things. So I think, you know, we all want the same goal in the end. Um, of course, people will dis can disagree about why, you know, how we're going to get there. But this is something that has come into the framework. And another practical point I want to raise too, and I think this is one of the reasons people sometimes can look side eye at this idea is, if industrial corporates are for it, it must be bad. Now, look, we can look to history and say that that has that has burned us a few times in the past, and we have to be careful about that. But there is also a path in which getting serious about addressing our climate issues involves more than just the people that have been 
agitating for decades. It actually involves broader aspects of society, including our industrial society, including manufacturing, including the banks, including the global financial markets, et cetera. So maybe there is a way in which we can actually steer those actors with huge leverage to actually be part of the solution. And carbon removal is certainly not the only way, but it is one of those ways. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, it seems odd for an oil company to say, let's do carbon removal, for instance, and to assume that, well, maybe this is some kind of terrible trick. And look, it might be, and these claims should be scrutinized, but, you know, I'm talking about specific claims, but the general concept is sound. And if there are organizations that actually can do this at scale and will bear the cost, which I think morally they should, then that's worth a conversation. But I understand it creates um, some opposition. I think that's just something we have to talk about. So on this program, we talked a lot about direct air capture and looked at the current state of the, the technology and the early efforts to actually do it. I was wondering if there are any examples either of you would like to talk about that uh, you find interesting in the space that you think have quite a bit of potential to, to scale up. Yeah, I can start. There are a lot of areas that show a lot of promise. Um, when I'm talking to audiences that are new to carbon removal, one of the things I like to point out is that if you look at the atmospheric CO2 levels in our world, like a, a graph of it, you'll see the line kind of goes up and down and up and down and up and down, you know, many times over the course of a million years. But while there isn't a fixed amount of CO2 in our atmosphere, there is a fixed amount of carbon in our planetary system. So when that carbon is not part of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, where does it go? And that points you to where is there a huge potential to store carbon in our planetary system? So the, the key areas really are the ocean, rock, and biomass on a much smaller scale. So when people think about like, oh, we need to get all the CO2 out of the atmosphere, when Elon Musk posted that he was going to be contributing $100 million to carbon capture, so many people responded to his tweet and said, I know how to do it, just plant trees. And, you know, obviously we should plant trees. There's so much deforestation that's really good for the planet. There are all these co-benefits. But in terms of meeting the scale of carbon removal that's needed, you really can't get all the way there with trees. So the thing that I personally am most excited about is rock. So this can be done in a, a few different ways. One of them is using direct air capture to capture the CO2 and then pump it underground into basalt rock formations where it mineralizes and there you go, it's permanently stored. But you can also do something a little bit different above ground where you take that CO2 out of the air and then you combine it with calcium to make calcium carbonate, which is limestone. And in our planetary system, 99.9% .9 of all the carbon is stored in the form of rock, and much of that is limestone, you know, in the, in the lithosphere. So there's a huge capacity to store carbon in this way, and rock is the second most used material on Earth after water. So the market for it is massive, and there are multiple different ways now that people have, are finding to incorporate excess CO2 into the production of both rock and cement to make concrete. So there are just a lot of innovations and a lot of potential in that particular area that I'm excited about. Cool, Max, do you have any examples? Yeah, let, let me add a couple on here too. The ocean, I think for me is probably the largest sort of area of potential, but also maybe the least explored. I don't just mean in the traditional like national geographic sense, we don't know what's down there, but I mean, there are a lot of ocean carbon removal techniques that I think have been discussed, but not too many have been demonstrated or deployed in the way that will generate a lot of data, generate a lot of improvement, allow some rapid progress. So I really look forward to that in the next few years. You know, and as Erica said really well, you know, the earth is mostly ocean. 
you know, a, a simple rule of thumb I like to think about with trees is cutting down trees is terrible for a lot of reasons, but cutting down trees did not get us into the CO2 mess, transferring huge amounts of carbon from under the ground, the fossil hydrocarbons and burning them and basically putting the carbon up in the air. That's what got us into this mess. So sort of conceptually, it sort of makes sense that probably we can't do it all with biomass, even before you get to the math. I'll just call out as one example, you know, the type of direct air capture plus mineralization is a, a company called Climeworks, uh, combined with another group called CarbFix. They're doing this. Everybody should check that out. It's a fantastic example of what's possible. I think a lot of the soil and agriculture-based solutions are really interesting, not because of their CO2 removal potential, but also it connects to something people already do and are familiar with. Sometimes when we talk about carbon removal, we have a sense of some new layer, some new piece of technology that we have to kind of invent or fund and Direct air capture kind of fits that mold. You know, Climeworks' technology did not exist 20 years ago. Now it does. It's new. Agriculture has existed forever. People do it everywhere in different ways with a million different practices. The idea that we could enhance topsoil productivity, retain water, increase crop yields, prevent desertification, and enhance the soil's ability to sequester CO2 or achieve those goals by increasing the ability to sequester CO2, for me, that's really powerful because it can be relevant to every society and especially in the developing world where agriculture, um, I mean, agriculture is a big deal everywhere, but a lot of the developing world has an agricultural based economy. So the idea that carbon removal can be participatory and not just an expensive piece of technology that only a couple of countries can afford. I think getting into that, that first mode is how we're actually going to make this achieve some scale. And you mentioned the ocean. I'm curious, like, do you have any, I have a hard time imagining what sort of stuff yeah. might, might exist. Do you have any examples? Sure. So here's a couple of ideas. So one is called, it goes by the technical term, ocean alkalinity enhancement. Another way to say this is imagine distributing kind of the right kind of rock powder into the ocean to counteract CO2 that is dissolving into seawater and creating carbonic acid. That's also called ocean acidification. It's one of the reasons the shellfish and corals are struggling so much. So it's kind of a direct chemical counterbalance to that. There's another idea of directly sort of undissolving or desorbing CO2 from seawater, question mark next to that one. I'm not an expert in that area, but it's something people have proposed. There's another, which is to stimulate the biomass in the ocean itself. For instance, stimulate a phytoplankton and algae bloom. That'll generate a lot of algae growth in a certain area. Guess what algae like to eat? CO2. At the end of their life cycle, those algae might die and then sink to the bottom of the ocean. So the net effect is a bunch of biomass captured CO2 that was in the air or seawater and then sank to the bill in the ocean where presumably they'll stay. So it's kind of a form of sequestration. I'm even watching the Disney Plus whales show that came out on Earth Day. I have kids who have been working my way through it with my daughters. And there is this idea out there that dramatically increasing the biomass, the living biomass in the oceans is a way to sequester carbon, specifically whales. Um, I'm just throwing this out as an idea I've heard. I haven't studied it, but I'm just bringing it up because there are a lot of people exploring a lot of different angles. Look at some of these aren't going to work. Some of them are only going to work a little bit. Some of them are going to have other benefits that really aren't CO2 removal. But, you know, of course, for instance, preserving our whale population has all kinds of other benefits. But there are a lot of different ideas that are kind of weird and wonderful. Kelp farms, seagrasses, these are also fast growing plants that eat CO2. And so these are some of the ideas that I've come across. And this is one of the, I think, the cool things about a prize is that it, you say, hey, it's open to all solutions and people can bring their ideas forward. Frankly, crazy ideas get to be tested and proven to either just be crazy or really be something that can really have legs and promise if you can show some data behind it. But it also allows people to be creative and bring forward the solutions a little bit. And so 
probably not the only way to do that, obviously, but we're just starting to scratch the surface of, I think, what carbon removal can be. And uh, these are some of the examples of solutions that people are talking about out there. You know, I think the prize is really cool. And I mean, 100 million seems like a, an awful lot, especially given how I, I think until recently small and tangential this uh, area was in terms of the broader climate movement. But w one thing that came up when we looked into this area on this podcast, specifically with direct air capture, was there's not really a business model yet for these technologies. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like no government on a big scale is paying anyone to take carbon dioxide out of the air. And that seems to be the really big kind of missing element to getting these methods and technologies on their feet. Could you just talk about that and if you see any signs of progress on that, either one of you? Sure, I'll go to that one first. You're right. Uh, no one's really paying for it. This, In some way, this is kind of the entire problem. Um, it's free to pollute CO2. Uh, so we're doing it. There are very few restrictions or regulations. And only in the last couple of decades have we, the broader society, started to wake up to the fact that not only is excess CO2 pollution a problem, it could be a devastating problem. And, oh yeah, by the way, why is it completely free to pollute CO2 again? Why is that the case? So it is true that if I build a direct air capture machine tomorrow, it's not obvious who's going to pay me to actually execute this function. So two things I'd say. One, it's really important that we include in our conversations of any kind of climate intervention um, value, not just cost. It's clear that it costs money to execute some of these solutions. But surely there is some value in avoiding a climate catastrophe or avoiding, let's say, CO2 concentrations going above 450 or 500. There's, there's some obvious value, whether it's public health or societal, but it's kind of hard for us to put our finger on it. But more to the point, you know, I'll name Climeworks, I'll name Carbon Engineering, I'll name Global Thermostat. These are three of the leading direct air capture companies. They each have a slightly different business model. Um, there are some carbon pricing or CO2 pricing regimes starting to come into the world in Canada, in California. There's a federal tax credit called 45Q in the United States. These are ways that you can get paid to do this. It's number two, you can produce a product of value. This is something carbon engineering has experimented with. They produce a liquid kerosene fuel. It's not carbon negative as a fuel, but it's a way to develop their direct air capture technology and is a product of value that will avoid CO2 emissions and can help them offset costs and sort of have a sustainable business. Global thermostat, they're pursuing kind of a hybrid approach of different business models. But you're right, everybody is trying to figure out these business models. It's a new realization that we need this we're getting pretty good at understanding what the costs are, and there's a strong focus on bringing the costs down. But we will have to figure out socially or economically how to pay for this. And I think part of that has to be a consideration of, well, what is this worth to us in addition to how much does it cost up front? Yeah, I can add on a little bit. When we're thinking about solutions that are well-suited to the goal of climate restoration, financeability is one of the key criteria that we look at. And like Marcus said, there is a fine balance between bringing down the cost of carbon removal and identifying large markets that we could serve with substitution products that use carbon dioxide as an input. So our focus is typically on commercial byproducts that can be made from CO2. So things like the rock that I was talking about earlier. I mentioned you can you know, pump that CO2 underground and have it mineralize. And there are a lot of companies at this point that are making net zero or net negative pledges. And in order to meet those pledges, they are paying for that type of carbon removal offset. So at least for now, there is a market of people voluntarily paying for that type of service. But it's a little bit hard to predict what that market will look like over the next you know, half a century. So we think it's a safer bet to look at 
you know, mineralizing that CO2 above ground so that you can sell the, the rock that results. And like I mentioned, that's a massive commercial market. Or Marcus mentioned, you know, seaweed farms are increasing biomass in the ocean. Okay, well, then you have this kelp farm that you could actually harvest kelp and use it in cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, food, etc. As long as you're also making sure that there's a lot of biomass that's actually sinking to the bottom of the ocean, why not use this as a commercial opportunity to allow you to scale this business and store more CO2 in the ocean ecosystems? Marcus also mentioned the 45Q tax credit, and I just want to mention that again. You know, that's a really innovative way, right, for the government to take on some of the cost of developing and scaling these technologies. And as always, we need to be a little bit critical about who is actually getting access to these tax credits. Because a lot of time this is used for enhanced oil recovery. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there have been efforts to expand 45Q to be more accessible to smaller companies doing direct air capture for for other purposes. But we really need to make sure that tools like this are being accessed by the, the smaller players who have the innovative ideas like the ones that will end up in this XPRIZE. I'm curious how uh, the two of you on your own individual paths ended up focusing on carbon removal. Erica, I saw in your biography that uh, you are an eco-anxiety uh, expert. Was, uh, was that a connection to the fact that this was a way of feeling a bit hopeful about the subject? Yeah, yeah. I really lined up my career to be working on poverty reduction. I got my master's in international development administration and my PhD working on evaluation of international development programs. And I was like, all right, I'm going to improve development aid. We're going to make this work for all people. And as I started working in this area, you know, climate change kept creeping in. You know, the best development program in the world doesn't really work if a flood wipes out all of the farms that people are working on or a drought destroys all of the crops. Like there's only so much you can do with all of these natural disasters, which of course are hitting the most vulnerable populations. But I was really determined not to get involved because it just, it was so overwhelming, right? And I think that's the case for a lot of people that climate change is just such an insurmountable obstacle. It's just not even worth thinking about it. And then I talked to the founder of the Foundation for Climate Restoration. And he mentioned that, you know, at its most basic level, the problem of climate change is a problem of too much CO2 in the atmosphere. And we've all been talking about reducing emissions and reducing emissions. And ultimately, we passed what's known, what's considered to be a safe threshold, the 350 parts per million threshold in 1988. And we've still just been saying, reduce emissions, reduce emissions, but that CO2 doesn't go anywhere for hundreds of years. So in the meantime, we've just been building up this excess, filling up this bathtub. And at this point, you know, anyone who's working in climate change knows that if we stopped all emissions right now, we would still be in a lot of trouble. But the part that I really had never considered before was that we know how to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We're maybe not as good at it yet as we, you know, could be. But from the time that we started putting humans in sealed capsules like submarines and space shuttles, we needed to know how to take CO2 out of the air. So, you know, we've been developing this technology in one way or another for many decades. And if we can just take out the excess, we can fix this problem. When I talk to people about climate restoration, most of them have never considered the idea that this is a problem that we could solve and that's worth solving. 
It's not just something that's going to loom over their heads and destroy their children's futures. So it's really, it's a fun problem to work on because I get to watch people take a deep breath for the first time and, and let that weight off their shoulders and consider a future that looks brighter than present day. Do you have anything uh, you'd like to add, Marcus? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I got into carbon removal. Maybe I'll kind of work backwards and forwards. So I really first became aware of carbon removal when I was at the, I just started working at XPRIZE and I went to the launch event of the NRG COSIA carbon removal prize. So it's like almost five and a half years ago. And that, that was a prize for CO2 utilization as it like converting CO2 to useful stuff. And somebody came up to me and said, you know, this prize is cool and everything, but uh, you should really focus on direct air capture. And they just kind of said that to me. And I, I think that was the first time I heard those words. I just said, okay, like, well, I, I understand the idea, but like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just got here. Yeah, but I, you know, it kind of stuck with me. I started learning it. So I definitely got into carbon removal through carbon utilization, so to speak. More generally, I got into climate change because of my interest in energy. I grew up uh, just always interested in energy, thought it was cool. I pursued engineering and physics uh, as a university student, studied really fundamental physics, but always had a strong interest in energy. I grew up in Canada. So energy innovation in Canada, you know, Canada is a rich country, which means the energy system basically works. You touch the light switch, the lights come on, no one thinks about it. So energy innovation means cheaper and greener and renewables. So for instance, I had some really good jobs working in solar and exploring technology that way. And of course, thinking about lower carbon energy makes you think about climate. And being at a university campus, there's a lot of active climate research, as there has been many places for decades. And that just kind of got me interested. And I then started steering my career towards energy and climate policy and technology and finance and, and uh, tried to bring those three things together. And now with a focus on this one area, carbon removal. You've mentioned a few times the other XPRIZE that you worked on, the Energy Cozia XPRIZE, where the prize was for using carbon in useful ways. I was wondering if you could tell me any takeaways from that and any lessons from that overall process of, of seeing that XPRIZE play out. Oh, sure. Well, yes, it's just concluded, meaning we've just awarded the prize money and announced who the winners are. Congratulations to Carbon Cure from Canada. Congratulations to UCLA Carbon Built from California in the USA. That just very quickly, the challenge was, could you show a solution that takes carbon dioxide from a point source, which means like an industrial source, a smokestack, so to speak, in this case, a power plant, that's what we asked people to do, and transform that CO2 using whatever method into some product that has value, a brick, a fuel, food, whatever you want by whatever method. We don't care, just show that it could be done. Not that we... We knew it could be done in principle, but the question was, can you do this in a way that looks like it could be commercially viable, that could scale and become meaningful on its own and meaningful for climate? The two winners both produce concrete products, which is really interesting, back to what Erica was saying before. Massive market, um, pretty straightforward technology, not to take anything away from the innovation, but like relatively straightforward. In other words, it can be made to work reliably, as is, they've both demonstrated, can achieve pretty low cost because of some thermodynamic advantages of making rock and minerals out of CO2, but also practical advantages. And so they, they won the prize because they had the best demonstrations and the best quality data. Some things we learned along the way is that, well, it reinforced the idea that these prizes can work in a topic like this. And to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical. I joined XPRIZE to think, well, I've heard of these prizes, but I don't know if they will work in this topic in energy, but let me find out. And so I kind of just dove in. And what I noticed was the thing that really stands out to me is the leveraging of investment. 
a $20 million prize was able to leverage more than $200 million of investment in the topic. That's not X prize money, that's third parties adding to the pile in funding the companies directly, paying for the testing centers, for grants, other forms of support. And that's kind of the point to drive more attention. It's very difficult to raise money when you have a new capital intensive solution. Investors, especially in the United States and that region like to invest in things like media and software, which you could see a return on investment much more quickly. And I don't want to take away anything away from people doing, they're doing amazing work there, but it can be less expensive and you can make progress more quickly sometimes. So that's a challenge for sort of hardware based or environmental based technologies because it can be longer gestation period. So we learned a lot of tricks about how to support innovators along the way, everything from how to help people refine their pitches through to what kind of questions do investors and governments ask of these solutions when they first hear about them. We've tried to take a lot of those lessons forward into the prize work we've just launched now, um, cut out some of the things that we think didn't work, double down on things that we think do work, taking a lot of critical feedback and advice we got over the years and tried to roll them forward. So we're, you know, it sounds similar, but it's kind of a different topic. A kelp farm really has nothing to do with a concrete solution. That's okay. So it'll be a new challenge, a new set of innovators that we think will participate. And here's a difference that I, th I look forward to. When I started working on the other prize five years ago, I don't think anybody in my life had heard about that topic or knew what it was. So people just asked me like, what? Like, what is XPRIZE? What are you talking, what is this project you're talking about? And why, why are you moving to LA to do that? That's what my friends asked me. I don't think it's a household topic now, but the idea of climate innovation is definitely not a dusty topic anymore. People think about this, people have heard about the idea that, oh yes, our climate is changing, CO2 is a big part of it, this is not a good thing, maybe there's something we can do about it. I think like these are a little more commonly understood now. Um, and so this one is sort of a little bit more in the spotlight, of course, 100 million, the Musk Foundation, that's all very sort of shiny and eye-catching. But we hope to make this, you know, a global competition that can, as I said, raise a level of ambition and um, take us forward. But yeah, lots of learnings always, lots of bumps and bruises. Uh, but it's pretty cool to work on something, take your lumps, come out still standing, and then say, you know what? Now we have a chance to do it again. What would you do differently? How would you do it better? How would you do it? And so that's what's next. Okay, I'm curious if you've seen kind of a, a paradigm shift at all since starting working in this area, because like, you know, use the bathtub analogy, which I think is a really good analogy that we both need to like turn down the tap and uh, start uh, draining some of the excess away. And uh, at least to me, uh, since I've started paying attention, maybe like three, four years ago at this area, it seems like suddenly it's getting a lot more traction and a lot more people are talking about the need to also take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I'm curious, working on this full time, what you see the, the lay of the land as? Yeah, I think for us, one of the good ways to measure progress in this area is how long does it take for someone to understand the idea of climate restoration? And when we started out four years ago, it, we said it would take seven conversations. You would talk to someone about climate restoration, they'd be like, huh, okay. And then you'd talk to them again, they would really have either misinterpreted or forgotten or just, you know, not taken in anything that you said. And you'd have to kind of start over and over and over. And now, you know, if you mention climate restoration, people ask, like, is that even possible? But there's no question of like, is that an appropriate goal? Or like, how would one go about doing this? So we've really been looking at, we want people who are interested in, in the climate to be able to think critically about all of the news that's now coming out about carbon removal technologies, climate innovation, all of that. So whenever I talk to someone about climate restoration, I try to give them the tools that they need to kind of take in the news in, in an educated way um, and particularly focus on 
kind of instilling the, the three criteria of financeability, permanence, and scalability. Like we already talked about financeability here. Like, is there a business model or is there someone who will pay for this? Scalability is, can this be scaled to the, the degree needed for the goal of climate restoration? And permanence, you know, okay, you're taking the CO2 out of the air. Is it just going right back into the air after you use this product? So I think just by having those conversations and kind of teaching people how they can think about new climate innovations, we've been really seeing a lot of movement towards a, an educated public that's really engaged in the topic. I'm a bit curious about what role auditing would play in these methods and technologies, because like some of the ones you mentioned, like agriculture or soil management, for example, or uh, working with oceans or you know farming kelp and then having it fall down to the bottom of the ocean sound great, but at the same time, they sound very hard to to imagine an easy way in which we would be able to say, okay, that took that much carbon dioxide from the air. So in order to both get to like that permanence and scale and finance, it seems like understanding what is actually happening is such a big role. So I was wondering if both of you could comment on that. Yeah, I can start out briefly. Uh, I think that we are starting to see a lot of discussion about this in the climate innovation sector. And particularly, it seems like there's an, a new wave of innovation coming now that people have realized like, oh, this is a really big issue and there is demand to deal with it. We talked a little bit about like voluntary carbon markets earlier in this conversation. And that's one area where I've seen a lot of conversation about, you know, people feel so good about planting trees. And so they will, you know, pay a lot of money for people to reforest an area or to protect a threatened forest. But the it's so hard to know, like, is this carbon that's being uh, captured that would not have been captured otherwise? Or, you know, if you're protecting this forest, are the timber industry folks just going to a different forest and taking away trees elsewhere? Or, you know, if there's a wildfire and you've protected this forest, but it burns, you know, how are you accounting for that and it, these are really complex questions and that's just in the in the carbon market and you're right the the monitoring and verification in other areas like soil carbon you know a lot of the soil carbon projects are still taking physical samples of soil from their fields and sending it to a lab which is not super scalable and I'm sure anyone with a garden can tell you that the soil in one place in your yard is going to be different from the soil in a different place. And so if you think about acres and acres worth of farmland, it's really hard to sample sufficiently to capture all of the variability in the fields. But there are technologies being developed that can use satellite imaging and other AI to learn about the carbon storage in these types of settings. And that's helping a lot, but there's still a lot of work to be done in this area. I just want to uh, just go back to something Erica said, uh, used to take seven conversations. Now people ask questions like, is that even possible? In, you know, in the same way, you know, Kevin, you're asking us like, wait a minute, do these methods work? And what about verification? You know, great, this is good. Because five years ago, people would just say, what? Carbon what? Removal what? Or surely you're kidding. That like, what? You, that's a fantasy. Now it's, wait a minute, does it work? How well does it work? This is good. It is difficult. Um, I'll just say very quickly in the prize, we're asking every competitor to show their stuff and explain exactly how you're going to do this and exactly how you're going to verify. Some are really easy. I have a direct air capture machine. There's a pipe. Here's the flow rate of CO2. It goes into that other pipe at the end. 
It's very, it's very easy to measure. Others like soil monitoring, like Erica said, very tricky and difficult. I think one thing that helps me think about this is we need to start shifting from a frame of mind to, we're not gonna execute some kind of solution intervention that's going to last for a few years, absorb a bunch of CO2 and then stop. I think it's more like we're setting up systems that can naturally or in a mechanical or engineered or forced way, remove more CO2 on an ongoing basis, maybe for decades, and they will have to mature into that. So the monitoring question and the verification question is a big one, but it's also a natural extension of, all right, we're not just gonna aforest this region for a few years and then check some carbon box. We're aforesting it because we'd like that new forest or that existing forest to stand for generations. How do you start to do that? Yes, we're not that great at planning things out generations in advance or even decades in advance, but we can start to get there a little bit. I'll just point out, there are a few mainstream industries on earth that naturally do have to think long-term and they tend to be connected to things like liability and insurance, things connected to geology, uh, earthquaking, power plants, oil and gas sometimes because they have to think about their end of life. These are industries that are used to having to think in terms of decades, forest management is another one. So, you know, there are people out there that knew how to do this. What we just need to do is now bring some of that wisdom to carbon removal, because the question you ask is the key one. It's not, can it remove CO2 in principle, but can it do it in a sustainable long-term way? Again, what durability, what cost, et cetera. Yeah. And it strikes me, I mean, it's not only like 10 years. I mean, we need to kind of know that it will be out for 10,000 years or, or however the geological scale that we want to look at. I mean, even if, say, like randomly the kelp example or algae that goes to the bottom of the ocean, if for some reason that kelp uh, comes back up in, in 50 years with that or that decomposed kelp probably then, then all would be for nothing, more or less, <laughs> which seems like a, a tricky challenge, especially with, uh, I guess, some of the less technological ones. It is a tricky challenge. Um, I mean, even even something like direct air capture and injection of pure CO2 underground. Um, you still have to think about longitudinally, for instance, is there a risk of re-emission? Do we understand the geology of the CO2 under the earth? I mean, the answer is yes, we understand that pretty well, but you have to ask that question. What is the long-term monitoring regime? Maybe the answer is, okay, set it and forget it. And somebody looks at it every five years, or maybe it's it has to be verified remotely every six months. Or for the kelp farmer, you know, the question is not, oh, cool, you can set up a kelp farm for two seasons. That's great. The second question should be, what is your plan for ensuring the long-term sustainability of this farm? Does it have to be actively managed? Are you bringing an ecosystem to a point where it can manage itself, maybe the way it used to, or in a new way? You know, like, what is the long-term plan? Even just asking the question forces new thinking um, that will, I think, get us to those answers. To what extent do you think international cooperation is required for these technologies or these methods to really take off? Because to me, I would assume that, you know, the United States or, or China or Canada wouldn't say, well, we're just going to start taking out all this carbon dioxide um, if other countries and states and regions aren't also saying the same or making the same kind of commitments, which is seems to be the trap that we've had with uh, actual reductions of emissions in the first place. Do you guys have any thoughts on, on that? I do. I think that people all over the world have children and grandchildren and want them to survive. So fortunately, everyone has a vested, in, <laughs> a vested interest in this topic. Um, but you're right that anyone acting solo isn't going to get very far and no one wants to be the one putting in all the work in this group project. We have talked to a lot of folks at the UN, a lot of ambassadors and other leadership. And what we've heard is that 
Everyone is really interested in climate restoration and carbon removal. People don't understand it very well yet. And they need the education about, you know, how does this work? How can we legislate this type of work? And how can we cooperate on it? And there's also the element of if you can see this happening at the level of the state or the country capitals or at the at the city level, and then replicate that up the line, that can be much more effective than saying, okay, we're going to take on this totally new type of procurement legislation at the country level, you know, that, that typically won't happen. So we've seen a lot of opportunities for leverage working with cities and counties. And within the Foundation for Climate Restoration, we've recently started building out a grassroots network of local chapters that work specifically at that city, county, you know, subnational level so that we can demonstrate some of the types of actions that can be taken that can then be replicated at that state level. So you mean like a state or a city would unilaterally say, okay, well, we commit to taking 10,000 tons out of, uh, of CO2 out of the air? Yeah, I can give a little shout out to California Senate Bill 582, which was just introduced recently by Senators Stern and Cortese. And this actually commits the state of California to uh, taking leadership and restoring the climate to pre-industrial levels of CO2 by the year 2050. And before that, getting to 80% below 1990 emissions levels by the year 2035. So it dramatically steps up the ambition of California with the intention of then having other states follow suit. Another area where we've seen a lot of uh, progress is in procurement legislation. So we've been talking so much about rock and concrete, right? And this is actually really relatively easy to legislate. And there's a bill called LECLA, the Low Embodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act in New York State. And it gives some pretty easy ways for New York State to say, when we receive bids for an infrastructure project, instead of just looking at these bids based on their price, we're also going to take into account their environmental product declaration and their global warming potential. And in fact, if those products don't already have these these figures attached to them, we will give them a tax credit to go out and get these environmental product declarations so that when we look at these bids, we can get a more full picture of not only how much they cost, but also how much of an environmental impact they'll have. And this can give low carbon or carbon negative building materials a real competitive advantage in gaining state contracts. Marcus, you know, right now from the examples that I know of, like you mentioned, like Climeworks and Carbon Engineering and Global Thermostat, these are, they have like some things operating, but it's really, from what I understand, like the thousand a ton a year level, it's like really up to maximum, maybe like a few uh, tens of thousands of tons. When we're talking about gigatons, like the the scale is just so much more than uh, we can fathom right now. So I'm curious what you think is necessary to, to go from where we are now to maybe that middle stage where we're starting to approach even a gigaton a year or 100,000 tons a year worldwide. What, what do yeah. you think is needed for to help us get there? More of everything, but it's not as daunting as it seems for a couple of reasons. So you're right, you know, we're, we're really just getting started. And I think, I'll just say too, I think there's a bit of, many people have asked me things like, we only have a few years to do this to make a difference. You know, how are we possibly going to get to a gigaton in five or six years? And you know, the answer is like, well, you know, maybe we, maybe we won't, maybe we won't. But I, what I know for sure is that we'll never get there if we don't start and we don't accelerate. So we may be starting small. The good news is there are many solutions that have huge potential, 
but getting out of the mindset that sometimes we tend to have that we're looking for one magic solution, getting away from that mindset um, really helps a lot because then you can sort of see, well, you know, direct air capture can take up this bit and the oceans of, you know, alkalinity can do this bit and the kelp can do this bit and the soils can do this bit. And each one does a few percent and a few percent doesn't sound like a lofty goal to announce in the press. We're going to do 3%, you know, but in fact, that actually may be what we need. We need a hundred people, a hundred actors to each do 1%. We need some from ag. We need some from building materials. We need some from direct air capture oceans. And I'm not saying they're all going to be equal. They're all going to find their level based on what works, their cost, where they can scale, social acceptance, a million other things. But so we need, you know, those, those three direct air capture leaders, we need to support them as vigorously as possible. We need to help them expand. Carbon engineering, for instance, is working on a 1 million ton per year facility. They're hoping to have it ready in a few years, about three years. Um, wow, excellent. That'll be amazing. There's already talk that they may have commitment for maybe another one like that. Great. Okay, that's still 2 million, but it's, you know, what, 100,000 times bigger than what we have today? And that's just one company. So I think more innovations in direct air capture, more innovations in the other methods, and then, of course, scaling and starting to deploy these methods. I think it's sort of brick by brick how we build the wall or whatever other corny cliche you want to think of. Um, there's no doubt it's daunting. Um, but if we think of this as something we need to build over the long term, we're out of the stage where we need to get as many solutions tried and tested and accelerated, I think, as possible without losing sight of the fact that there are some that are ready to grow dr dramatically and other actors can step in and help to grow those dramatically too. So that's how I think about it. And, and what about how the average person can maybe help with this? Like someone who doesn't have $100 million to donate like uh, Elon Musk, who might not be a, you know, an MIT engineer or the like, or, or have money to donate to this directly? Yeah, well, a lot of different things. And I mean, let's not, I definitely want to make sure that, you know, look, I'm an engineer and I come from kind of that community, but this is not just the purview of sort of the engineers or the tech people or the, the Elon Musks. I mean, he's kind of unique, but you know, that tech visionary sort of high tech business type, that is, I don't think the only thing we need in carbon removal, although we have some of that and I think it helps. Um, for the average person, first of all, just sort of educate yourself about carbon removal, listen to this pod, listen to others get, understand the topic, see what you think of it, you know, ask a friend, engage a friend a bit. I mean, everybody's got different views on it. You know, wrestle with some of these questions, like, does this create an incentive for us to do less because we think there's a magic get a jail free card? Or how do we manage that? What areas of the world could you imagine th these solutions? So that's one. The second thing that I think helps bring people into the topic is there's so many different ways to do carbon removal. So even that phrase is relatively new. You might just call it regenerative agriculture. <laughs> You might just call it protecting a forest, things that people have been doing forever. We're now kind of using this technical phrase carbon removal because we've noticed, oh yeah, that happens too when you do that. So look for other entryways into the space if you're interested that may be more familiar to you. To get even more involved, you know, most people don't have a hundred million dollars to put up. You know, I certainly don't, but maybe you can get involved with someone that's trying to build a project, whether it's in the sea, on land, in a farm, in a lab, no matter where it is, maybe there's a there's a role for you. There is a real groundswell of new organizations, startups, research groups working on the topic. So whether you're a student, uh, whether you're you know at the end of your career, whether you're just a regular person, um, you can follow some of these groups online, or you can maybe even get involved with one of them. And then of course you know there's other levels at the policy level. Erica mentioned a couple of examples of types of policy people are considering. If you work for a corporation, 
chances are your corporation has or is at least considering making some kind of net zero commitment, you know, ask the question, hey, is carbon removal part of our strategy? If yes, what type? If not, should it be? Or why not? Or like, how do we have that conversation? So um, there are a lot of ways to get involved without physically removing molecules yourself, so to speak, of course. But if you have an idea to do that, you know, you can <laughs> think about how to act on that as well. But I think we're at the beginning of something. I think in the same way that we've seen a lot more opportunity for people to participate in the climate conversation in the last so three, four years, I think we're going to see more opportunity for people to engage in this subset of the climate conversation, this carbon removal or this climate restoration piece. Cool. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I'm I'm really excited to see what sort of things the, the people who are vying for the XPRIZE uh, come up with. And I, I hope that uh, quite a few... Uh, people start getting into the space inspired by the, the prize money and I guess the increased awareness around this topic. I hope so too. That's the whole idea. And uh, let me just give a special shout out to the students out there. Student competition is the thing that hits first. Uh, deadlines in the fall. You just need a proposal by October 1st. So if you've got some other, whether you're a graduate student, undergraduate, a postdoc, if you've gotten a concept that you'd love to submit to us, we'd love to see it uh, later this year. Cool. Uh, easier way for average people to get involved than without uh, having to go for the $80 million directly. Exactly. And uh, that's the only part of the competition that's just proposals. So you don't have to have a prototype built this year. Uh, you can submit a concept. You know, it's got to be well thought out. Got to put some effort into it. But if you don't have access to money, lab space, testing space, outdoor space, whatever you need yet, um, this may be a way to get started. So something to think about. And then, of course, look, those student teams are going to need a lot of support from their community, from their friends, their family, their peers. So that's another way to get involved. If you know somebody that's interested, pass it on and uh, maybe you can help them out. Cool. Well, Eric and Marcus, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks for your support. And yeah, we look forward to seeing what, can, uh, what we can achieve together. Thanks so much for having us. This was a great conversation. That was Marcus Exavor, the executive director of the XPRIZE, and Erica Dodds, the CEO of the Foundation for Climate Restoration. And that's it for The Elephant this time. I'm Kevin Kaners. Thanks so much for listening.